Um, you probably don't know this, but I messed up royally a while ago. I was supposed to do the welcome, and when we were watching that video and I saw um, a father reading the Bible, the only thing I could think of is the last memory of I have of my dad, and so it just threw me completely off. And so I want to welcome you this morning to Red Lane Baptist Church. If you're visiting with us, we're super excited you're here, and I hope you got a, a, a bulletin, and in that bulletin is a communication card, and when we pass the offering plates in a little while, uh, we would ask that you just take some time to fill it out and put that communication card in there. We would like to talk you, with you more about uh, what God's doing here at Red Lane, and, and, and obviously there's places in there for prayer requests, and we pray over those every week, and so um, thank you for being here on this, this holiday weekend. Nehemiah chapter 8 is where we're at this morning, working verse by verse through this great book. Uh, this past uh, couple Sundays, we've been in this particular chapter and looking at the idea of spiritual renewal. Several years ago, in fact, before President Eisenhower died in 1969, Billy Graham was invited to visit him. Lately, I've been listening to a lot of Billy Graham sermons on Sirius XM. They've got a station now, Station 145, if you do Sirius XM. Uh, I don't know how long they're going to have it there, but they play Billy Graham sermons from his crusades over and over and over again. And I just find myself intoxicated with his preaching. Uh, the last couple of days as I've been in the truck or had Haley in the truck with me, she just looks at me like, Dad, can we turn the station? It's like, it's Billy Graham. You don't like Billy Graham's preaching? She says, no, Dad, it's boring. It's like your preaching. It's boring. <laughs> so I don't know where she went, but uh, she's supposed to be in here listening to my boring preaching this morning. But I have fallen in love again with the preaching of Billy Graham, being able to listen to him. And so here's, here's a short story. In 1969, as I said, as he's, uh, Billy Graham was, was invited to come and to visit President Eisenhower before he passed away. And so the evangelist was told that he only had 30 minutes to, to meet with the president, to pray with the president. And so he went to meet with President Eisenhower. And so um, as he went there, met with the president... The 30 minutes passed by like it always does in a blink of an eye. And there at the end of the 30 minutes, as, as Billy was beginning to uh, kind of gather his things and thought his time was up, the president asked him to stay longer. Billy, the president said, I want you to tell me once again how I can be sure my sins are forgiven and that I'm going to heaven because nothing else matters. Nothing else matters at this point. And so Billy took his New Testament out of his pocket. He began to read several verses with President Eisenhower. He pointed out that we go to heaven totally on the merits of what Christ did on the cross. Billy Graham prayed with President Eisenhower. And after praying with the president, he said, thank you. I am now ready. As you reflect back, as we reflect back on this wonderful picture of Billy Graham being able to meet one last time with President Eisenhower... It reminds us that it's the Word of God and not the opinion of man that people want to hear when they're beginning to darken the door of eternity. We want to hear from God. We don't want to hear from man. And the truth is this morning, something we all need to be reminded of is that death awaits every one of us. I hope you didn't come this morning to be discouraged. I'm not here to discourage you. But we need to know something. We need to be reminded of something. And that is death is awaiting all of us. In fact, death is something that helps us out. The, the idea of death points out and it reminds us of our finiteness. I believe at times we need to be reminded that we are finite creatures. We are not infinite creatures. There is an end to our life. 
And so death causes us to search for something or someone who transcends life and death. And we find the someone that we're looking for in the pages of the Bible. You see, God has spoken. As we've looked here in this eighth chapter of Nehemiah, we've seen and been reminded that God has indeed spoken. In fact, from the opening pages of creation to the concluding promise of Christ's return, the Bible and as such the Christian faith conclude that God has indeed spoken and God continues to speak even today. The Bible that we hold in our hands is an inspired book. Many writers, as I've already said in past weeks, many writers contributed to its authorship or its composition over a span of 1,500 years. But even though it has multiple writers, it has one author, and that author is God. Paul said it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 3, All Scripture is God-breathed. It is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Peter said it this way in 2 Peter 1, No prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Word of God, the Bible that we hold in our hands, is God's Word. That's one of the reasons I love listening to Billy Graham's preaching so much. It's because he always says, the Bible says. He's not saying, I've said this, or some scholar said this, some commentary said this, some preacher said this. No, the Bible says. It is God's inspired Word, His revealed truth to us. The fact is we could not have come up with something so, uh, so profound as the Word of God. We as human beings, Paul says in Romans 1, we suppress the truth. We suppress the truth that the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth. We want to put ourselves at the center of the universe, the center of life. But it's the God of creation who's at the center. And so the Word of God is the revelation of God. And it's God's revelation to us and our faith. The Christian faith is grounded in this revelation. You look in the Old Testament and we see where Moses was met by God there and God bestowed to him the law. We move to the New Testament and we see that God himself came and revealed himself through the person of Jesus Christ, God the Son, to show us salvation and hope. So it's the revelation of God. Revelation is simply the unveiling of that which is hidden. It is God pulling aside the curtain. It's God sweeping away the clutter. It's God opening the door of understanding and truth so we can peek in and see who God is. We see this in creation. We see this in Scripture. We see this in the person of Christ. God has revealed Himself to us. God has spoken. The result of this inspiration, the result of this revelation is that the Bible has authority for all of life. You see, we can't leave, we're not left to live this life in the way and the manner in which we would desire. We are to live this life in the manner and the way in which God has said for us to live this life. We approach God in the manner He has prescribed and all of this comes through the authority of God's Word. It's the only rule of faith and practice. It is God's inspired, revealed, and authoritative word for us. Unfortunately today, many people, while finding the Bible interesting, finding it a book that would be appealing to read, fail to accept its authority. But that was not so for Jesus. Jesus, God the Son, 
God himself. Paul would say he's God of very God. He, he came to this world, he lived a life, and he committed himself to the authority of Scripture. He obeyed it in his every move. And so for us, he is our example of how we're to approach the Word of God. Therefore, today, as followers of Jesus, we believe the veracity of God's Word is the center around which life arranges itself. It's the center around every aspect of our life. It's how we're to live our lives. Everything's to revolve around Him. Your finances today shouldn't be revolving around you and your appetite. It should revolve around what God has said about finances. How you look at your family shouldn't be motivated or influenced by someone else's approach to family. It ought to be motivated and influenced by what God has said about family. And so on Father's Day, dads, how are you leading your families? Are you watching someone else in this world? Or are you looking at the Word of God and leading your family as God would have you lead them? It's the center upon which life arranges itself. And so, so far as we've worked through the book of Nehemiah in these first seven and a half chapters, we've seen that Nehemiah had an ambition to not just reconstruct the the city, and the walls of Jerusalem. He had a desire to revitalize the spiritual community of Jerusalem. He wasn't seeking to simply resurrect a religious community. He was seeking to to bring a spiritual renewal to the people of God. He desired to see his countrymen experience this renewal in their lives. And Nehemiah quickly begins to see that building the walls is actually going to be an easier task than restoring and renewing spiritual vitality amongst God's people. But he knew the only way for them to experience this spiritual renewal was for them to return to the Word of God. You see, the reason that they were exiled from the promised land to begin with was because they rejected God's Word. And so to experience this renewal in their lives as God's people meant they had to come back to the Word of God, believe the Word of God, live the Word of God, allow the Word of God to sink deep into the recesses of their hearts. So spiritual renewal and vitality come through God's Word, which forms the believer. And it's the spiritual renewal that I want to speak to and finish up this morning. As soon as the building work came to an end, as we see here in chapter 8, an unusual event took place. And this event was to prove dramatically influential in the spiritual life of God's people. We know that the work of the wall had been finished during the late summer month of Elul. We see this in chapter 6, verse 15. And so the next month, the seventh month of the Jewish calendar, is the month of Tishri. And this month marked actually the beginning of the new year. And so the first day of the seventh month was a public holiday known as the Feast of Trumpets. The law laid this out, that on the first day of the seventh month, they were to celebrate the Feast of Trumpets. And so only a few days after this, the completion of the wall, hundreds of men and women and children began to come to Jerusalem, come into the city to celebrate the new year in which God's written word played a central part. There in an outdoor public meeting was a devoted entire, was a public meeting devoted entirely to the reading and the interpretation of Scripture. Ezra and Nehemiah, as, long, as well as the uh, Levites and, and others, reestablished the faithfulness and the holiness among the Jews. And, and as they did so, they cultivated this genuine desire for the Word of God. And this desire for the Word of God began to open up the door for spiritual renewal in the hearts of the people. And so as we examine this desire, which led to their renewal, I want us to see here 
The two things that we've already seen, but I want to add a third thing to it. We've already seen that in spiritual renewal, you see this valuing of God's Word. And that valuing of God's Word leads to an application or an applying of this Word to our lives. And then thirdly this morning, I want us to move into this third section and see that as we value and as we apply it, we now share God's Word with others. And so there's this sharing of God's Word culminating in spiritual renewal. Look with me, if you will, to verse 13 of chapter 8. Nehemiah says, On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, they came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. We see here that the day following this huge meeting where they stood with the Word of God open and the people of God were standing to their feet and listening to the teaching of Ezra and to the explanation and the interpretation of the Levites, this following day of this huge meeting, the heads of families gather there in Jerusalem with their spiritual leaders to study the Word of God even further. Their reading on the second day reminded them that halfway through this seventh month, they were to celebrate this feast of booths, something that they had not taken seriously for many, many years. And so as they're reestablishing the Word of God into their lives and into their religious practice, as they're reestablishing themselves as God's people in God's land, they want to do things God's way. So they decided we need to take seriously what Leviticus 23 says about this feast of booths. See, scriptural teaching concerning this week of celebration was to be communicated by the heads of families to everyone else in the country. And so what they're sitting there saying is they're hearing the word of God. We can't keep this to to ourselves. We need to teach the people. And the fathers of the families began to own for themselves their responsibility to take this teaching to their own families so that all of Israel could hear the word of God. And this morning on this Father's Day, we see here a great example for dads to model in their homes. Gordon Shilver has said this, The Father is God's special representative in the home. As, families divinely, as the family's divinely appointed priest and intercessor, he is the spiritual leader. Dads, don't neglect the privilege and the responsibility that God has given you to point your kids toward Jesus and to teach them the Word of God. Dads, don't neglect that. See here in this text in this passage an example for you to follow to take the word of God and to teach it to your children to to model it before your children to point your children to Jesus Christ will you fail along the way absolutely will you fail today most likely 
But it's not your responsibility to live a perfect life. It's your responsibility to teach the Word of God and allow the Spirit of God to drive the Word of God into the hearts of your children. Be that example to them. And so these fathers of families are teaching the Word of God. Nehemiah here tells us that the fathers were to proclaim this Word and to publish it in all of their towns and in Jerusalem. Dads were taking responsibility for this. They weren't leaving it up to the preachers. They weren't leaving it up to the religious leaders. Dads were taking the responsibility to do this. And so during this upcoming festival, God's Word was not only to be declared orally, but also enacted visually so that by hearing and seeing, people could recall what God had done for them. That's what this Feast of Booths is all about. They're teaching the Word of God orally and modeling it visually by dwelling in these booths. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. So these, this feast directed God's people to three great themes, and let me unpack these for us this morning. The first theme is this. In the Feast of Booths, they were thanking God for the past. They were thanking God for the past. You see, this festival was Israel's annual reminder of God's protection and God's provision centuries earlier as their forefathers traveled through the wilderness on their journey from Egypt to Canaan. You remember that, reading it in the book of, uh, of Exodus. You remember the story there for the, that for 40 years, coming out of Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea, they went into the wilderness, and every step of the way, God provided for them and God protected them from their enemies. And so this feast reminds them of God's dealings with them in the past. During those long years, Wandering through the wilderness, the people of God lived in these booths, simple tents made from leaves and branches, and as they made their way through the dangerous wilderness, God provided for them. Through all the natural hazards, through all the wild enemies, through wild animals, through all the marauding enemies, they were constant threat to their safety, but God protected them. God provided for them. He brought them into the promised land that he had promised Abraham. And amid the pressure of new challenges, it was all too easy for the people of God to forget what God had done for them in the past. See, not just in the wilderness experience, it was easy for them to forget what God had done for them, even as they sat there with walls being constructed. Even here, some of the people did not have a proper home to live in in the city of Jerusalem. But at this festival, they were confessing that their confidence was in the Lord, not in walls and not in buildings. And so this was a visual example of the people of God saying, we trust in the Lord, we don't trust in ourselves, we don't trust in what we've done in the past. We trust in the God who's been with us in the past, and he's the God who's going to be with us in our present, and he's going to be the God who will be with us in our future. The Feast of Booths was an annual reminder to Israel of their immense indebtedness to God. You see, in this inevitable pressures of life, we too can be so concerned about what we want God to do that we forget what God has already done for us. How many times in our lives do we fall and become susceptible to this, that we forget how God has been faithful in our lives in past days? And we're sitting here trembling about what our future holds for us or what struggles we're going through now, but we've forgotten what God has done for us yesterday. We need to be like Samuel who said, till now the Lord has helped us. That's not saying the Lord has helped us in the past and I'm not sure about what he's going to do in the future. No, what Samuel is saying is this, God has been with me in yesterday, he's going to be with me today, and he's going to be with me tomorrow. Let us not be those who forget. Forgetfulness is at the root of a great deal of discontentment. Did you hear what I just said? 
Forgetfulness is at the root of a great deal of discontentment. How many of us today are discontented? We're not happy about where we're at. We're not happy about what we don't have or what we wish we have. Let's be grateful for what we do have. Let's be grateful for what God has done for us in the past. See, obsessed with what we need, oftentimes we ignore what we have. Think about how blessed we are as a people. Think about how blessed you are as a people, as a person. What blessings do you have in your house, in your home, in your family? I could sit here this morning and say, man, I I really wish the last 25 years uh, I'd have had my dad walking by my side. I wish for these last 25 years, these last nine and a half years that I've had children, I wish that I could say that my dad is a grandpa to my children, that my dad is is a mentor to me uh, as a young father. I wish that I could have those, but I can't dwell in what I don't have. I can dwell and will dwell in what I do have. I have a great memory of my dad coming uh, to Christ as a child and, and walking away at a guilty distance for many years in his life, but the last year of his life, God did a deep, deep work in his heart spiritually renewed him and so my last visual memory of my dad is something that encourages me and so I'm not going to dwell what I don't have I'm going to dwell on what I do have I have a great great memory of my father I'm not going to dwell on what I don't have financially I'm going to rejoice in what I do have financially I'm not going to dwell on what could be I'm going to dwell on what God has done for me do you see what I'm saying here We need to be confident and thankful for what God has done for us. And so as we value God's word, as we apply it to our lives, we share it with others. These men, these fathers, as they taught the word of God to their children, what they're doing is they're teaching and sharing it with others. They're saying God has been with us in the past. We can look to him in the future. So thanking God for the past leads us to the second theme, and that is testifying of God in the present. One of the beautiful aspects of this feast and other festivals was their impressive witnessing values. Once the Jews settled back here in the land, they did not live in detached, insulated communities. There were merchants and travelers who were traveling around uh, selling commodities and doing different things. We know for certain that the people from Tyre lived and had a, a, a headquarters there in Jerusalem. They were selling fish and other commodities. And so they traveled all throughout the region of Judah. And as these merchants and, and, and sellers and others traveled around, and even their own Israelite brothers and sisters, as they traveled around and as they saw these men and women with their families leaving their homes for seven days to go camping, they, could have, they couldn't have helped but ask why, right? Sometimes we ask why when people go, I like to camp, but when it's 105 degrees outside, count me out unless it's a travel trailer or something with air conditioning. But think about what's going on here. Why would you leave your house, the comforts of your home, something that perhaps you've just built, why would you leave that to go and dwell in a hut made of leaves and branches? They would have been asking why. Why are you doing this? So this was a magnificent opportunity for the people of God to proclaim and to spread the word to visitors, to strangers, to aliens, as well as their own children and young people. It was a remarkably vivid teaching aid for people who knew the importance of passing on this and the, to the next generation, the truths which God had entrusted to them. So the sharing of God's word here w- w- was an opportunity for them to testify to those presently in their country. It led to a third theme, and that is trusting God into the future. 
The Feast of Booths reminded the Jews of the biblical perspective they were to have regarding their lives and the livelihood. It told them that not just during their past history, but in their present experience, they were a pilgrim people. They were a people simply passing through. And see, at this particular time, the feast would have been a sobering reminder not to trust in walls. Because Jerusalem, 70 years before this, had walls. And those walls were breached. This would have been a sobering reminder for them to to learn from the past, trust God into the future, and to believe God into their future. And like their patriarchal forefathers, that of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, those men who lived in tents, they were looking to the city, as Hebrews 11 tells us, whose foundations were laid and, and, and made by the architect and the builder who is God. As Christians today, we also look beyond this world to that home the home for which God is constantly preparing us. Today, I hope that we're not living for things that this world has to offer. Today, I hope that we're not looking to the things that this world can give us and the the satisfaction that this world has. I hope that we're looking beyond that. See, this longing does not come, or it does not cause us to opt out of our present responsibilities. Far from that. This longing for something more, something beyond this life, leads us to be responsible in this life, but trust God for the future. Our position as aliens and strangers in this life creates within us a sense of urgency as well as a sense of perspective. There's a sense of urgency in this life to make sure that this life is all that God would have it to be and that God uses our lives in every possible manner he desires, but also it's a sense of perspective knowing that this life will end. Death awaits all of us. Christ could come back at any moment. So regardless of how enriching or regardless of how disappointing our present experience may be, as a follower of Jesus Christ, we know that ultimate satisfaction is reserved in the future for which Christ has promised us. Ultimate satisfaction will not be found in anything that this world has to offer. You could have the, uh, the... you could own a hundred homes, a hundred mansions. You could have a hundred businesses. You could be worth a hundred billion dollars and you never would find the satisfaction that you will have in heaven with just one home. And that home is Jesus Christ. This world is not what we're living for. Billy Graham used to share a story. As I've listened to many of his sermons in the last week or so, I've heard this story a, 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 probably three different sermons he's used this story. But he told of a lady that he had met in one of his crusade events, and this woman had been sick, I think, for maybe five years, but let's just say a number of years she had been sick, and and in her sickness she apparently didn't have a lot of family or a lot of friends. and, and, And so to Billy Graham she made this statement. She said, Brother Billy, I have spent many days alone, but never a lonely day. That's a profound statement. Here's a woman who's literally on her deathbed. She's been sick for a number of years. She has no family or friends to speak of who are coming and visiting and pouring their lives into her and encouraging her. And so she makes the statement, I've known many, many days alone, but I've never known a lonely day. What is she saying there? She's saying Jesus is the one who makes my life full. He's the one who satisfies me. He's the one who brings his presence into my life. And so today the intellectual and technological advancements that we've seen over the past uh, century and a half, these 
advancements have made many things of life easier. Praise the Lord for that. We were at Disney just a couple months ago and sitting in one of their shows or exhibits and they walk you through the 20th century and all the things that were happening technologically and how it's made life so much more simple. And yet at the same time, we know that it's also caused greater division perhaps than any other era of history. It's, it's, it's alienated us so much more now that our kids walk around, and I do too as well, I'm I guess part of that generation, we walk around with our head downs and we don't talk to people because we're texting or surfing something or using something on our phones, we're disconnected. And so technologically, intellectually, we have advanced and, and it has blessed our life and made it easier. However, those advancements have not been able to satisfy the deep longings of the human heart or heal the depravity in our culture. See, those things can't ever be touched by intellect or technology. They can only be touched by God. Therefore, as God's people, we look to God's Word for direction. In God's Word, we find the words of life. In it, we find our sense of purpose as God's created and redeemed people. In it, we find the source of spiritual renewal as we thank God for His faithfulness in the past, as we thank God for His faithfulness today, as we thank God for His faithfulness, and we trust in his faithfulness as we move into the future. God has indeed spoken. He's the one at the very beginning in Genesis 1. Genesis 1 says, let there be light. And the Bible says, and it was so. He's the one at the end of Revelation who comes back for us. And in the middle of all that, he's the one hanging there on the cross who cries out in Aramaic to tell us that it is finished. God has spoken, and he has spoken most clearly through the Son, Jesus Christ. And he alone, the Son, has the words of eternal life. His presence and his voice are what we seek. They are what bring spiritual renewal to our lives. And so we would be wise to value God's word that reveals him to us. We would be wise to apply it to our lives, and we would be wise to share it with others, sharing it with our spouses, sharing it with our children, sharing it with our family, sharing God's word with our friends, sharing God's word with our co-workers, students, sharing the word of God with our classmates. We were at the Southern Baptist Convention this past week, and, and uh, you go to the exhibit hall, and you get all kinds of little knickknacks. And usually it weights you down, you don't want it. But at the North American Mission booth, they had some cool stuff. And so uh, we wanted to bring something back for our children, which we typically do. And so we're cheap, and so we decided to bring something back that uh, was free to us. That's always a good thing. And so at the North American Mission booth, there was these fidget spinners. If you know what a fidget spinner is, they were giving these away. And they're actually in the uh, three-circle fidget spinners. And so on the three little pendulums on the fidget spinner was God's design, broken, and uh, whatever the other third circle is. I'm drawing a blank here. But basically, you could share the gospel with a fidget spinner. So I was joking with Haley the other day. Uh, I picked him up from school. And uh, Hannah, I think, had taken her fidget spinner to school on Friday. And I said, Hannah and Haley, did you take these? And I'll have an opportunity to share the gospel with your classmates. And I walked them through how they could do that real quick. I said it as a joke, but I was also serious as a heart attack. Students, you need to take the word of God and share it with those you go to school with. We need to share the word of God with our neighbors. We need to take the word of God to the nations. The word of God is the only hope for mankind. The Bible is the only hope for mankind. I'm going to share this and then we'll, we'll have a time of response. The Bible. The Bible contains the mind of God. 
the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, the happiness of believers. The Bible, its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its decisions are immutable. Read it to believe, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It's the traveler's guide. It's the pilgrim's staff. It's the pilot's compass. It's the soldier's sword, the Christian's character. Here, paradise is restored. Heaven is opened and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject. Our good is design and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, daily, prayerfully. It's a mind of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, will be opened at the judgment, and will be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and condemns all who trifle with its contents. We believe the Bible. This morning, if you desire spiritual renewal, it comes through the Bible. This morning, you may be sitting here and you are outside of Christ. You know with certainty that today you are not a child of God. You've never given your heart and life to Jesus Christ. You know that you're a sinner. You know that your sin condemns you. You know that your sin separates you from the God who created you for himself. And you desire to be spiritually renewed. How do you experience that? It's through the teaching of the Word of God. The Bible tells us that whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. The Bible tells us that if we will repent of our sin, place our faith in Jesus, we will no longer bear the brunt, the wrath of our sin, but instead will be given forgiveness and a new life in Jesus Christ. This morning, you may be a follower of Jesus Christ, and as a follower of Jesus, you know that you're saved, you know that your sins have been forgiven, but for some reason, you are walking at a guilty distance. For some reason, you've walked away from the Lord. For some reason, your fellowship with Him is not close, and you desire spiritual renewal. How do you have that? It comes through the teaching of the Word of God. The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that if we will... If, uh, if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all sins. It's through the teaching of the Word of God. So this morning, are you in need of spiritual renewal? Maybe this morning your relationship with the Lord is sweet. Your relationship with the Lord is intimate. Your relationship with the Lord is everything you would desire it to be. How do you continue to walk in that type of fellowship? It's through the teaching of the Word of God. As you daily as you daily feed upon the Word of God. It is the bread of life to you. It is the water that refreshes your soul. And so the Word of God speaks to us. The Word of God um, moves in us. The Word of God leads us to faith and to repentance. And so this morning, as we move into a time of response, my prayer for you is this, is that you would draw close to Jesus, believe the Word of God, and apply it to your life. Lord Jesus, this morning... 